0: I remember I was in Chicago once, and I was like, this next song is called Boat People. Uh, And I heard someone in the back go, Woohoo And I was like, oh, it's really offensive. Like, it's a really sad song. It's about this doctor who almost died, you know? And then afterward, this woman came up and gave me a huge hug, and she was like, I'm the boat person, I'm a boat person. And that usually happens. There's usually like one or two Vietnamese people at every concert I do. That's been really awesome. So it's been kind of piecemeal finding a community because, uh, like Quentin, I'm also uh, mixed and I came from a very isolated part of the country. But, you know, something like this, it's really the most Vietnamese people I've ever been uh, doing a performance with. And uh, I feel so lucky to be a part of it and very humbled.
1: You're listening to the podcast Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Ming, and welcome back. Hey, everyone. I hope you are staying healthy, both body and mind, during this unsettling time in America. As an organization that helps to promote the voices of refugees and immigrants, we know how important it is for all of us to live a life with dignity. We all deserve it. We deserve justice and equality and fair treatment. We stand by our black community as allies in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. We have shared a few ways to take action on our Instagram and our Facebook page at Vietnamese Boat People. I encourage us all to try in our own ways to help make an impact, even if it's just within our own circle of friends and families. Every mindset that is changed matters. Black lives matter. Please speak up and speak out. Earlier this year, our podcast launched an open call nationwide across the U.S., asking the community to share your Vietnamese American experiences with us in the form of a video submission for a chance to be featured in a virtual story slam event. The topic of what you wanted to share or how creative you wanted to get was completely open. We wanted to provide the platform for you to share your story, however you wanted to tell it. Ten amazing storytellers from West Coast to East Coast were chosen to share stories in a live stream event on May 29th. We had over 2,000 viewers from across the world tune in online to spend the evening with us. Our storytellers each shared their very personal experiences in the form of monologues, music, poetry, art, and more. In this episode, we relive that special evening with you. This is the Mui Story Slam. I'm super excited to get to share and announce our first storyteller. Her name is Lynn kim Do, and she is from Brooklyn, New York. Lynn is a first-generation born American and is participating to tell her mother's story. Her mother's story is a story of a Vietnamese woman in search for her American father. This video that we're about to play from Lynn is called Above Trash. And when my mother was born, her mother didn't want her and her father
2: disappeared. Her grandmother raised her. My grandma funny, she said she picked me up from trash. So sometimes I, I think I believe it what she say? because I say I'm not personality,
3: not look like no, 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 my brother. <laughs> That's what I say.
2: It wasn't until my mother was 15 years old that her mother came back into her life because an opportunity arose. The Amerasian asian Homecoming Act. A bill passed by Congress that allowed children and their families to come to America to find their American father. And this opportunity laid solely in the hands of this 15-year-old girl. So when she was 15, she got into a plane with four strangers, three half-brothers that she met for the first time, and her mother. She do paperwork. Then she mentioned about... Uh... Daddy Marvin her father's name, Marvin Sorrell. She had to memorize it like it was her birth date, social security number. She didn't get another chance to find her father until 15 years later. She was 30 years old. She was doing the nails of a client, a client she didn't know very well. A TV show popped up. A person that father lost friend, or, you know, on the TV show. And then I say, well, one day I'm going to go into that show. The client goes, what do you know about him? His name is Marvin Sorrell, that's all she knew. She didn't even know how to spell his name. One quick thing that's very important. This is the year 2000. The internet was a new fascinating thing. Yellow pages still existed. Home phones still existed. All of this came together and ended on a piece of paper that the client handed my mother. One name, Marvin Sorrell, five numbers underneath. He goes, this is my chance to meet and find my father. First number, a kid picked up. It was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Hangs up on her. Second phone number, the Marvin Sorrell was too old, he passed away. The third, too young. The fourth and fifth didn't check out. And she was really, really disappointed. And the next day she went to work. And she told everyone the news. But then her coworkers and the clients in, in the salon goes, Why well, do you call back the first number? It's a little kid. That night, she called again, a woman picked up. She goes, uh, Marvin Sorrell there, and she said yes. Yeah. Did he serve in the Vietnam War? Check. Was he 47 when he served Check.
4: I'm like, excellent, exactly. I'm looking look like at my father.
2: She handed the phone to her husband. My mom ran through the questionnaire again, in which he said, yes ma'am. Yes ma'am, yes ma'am, everyone. He's an Alabamian resident. She had finally found her father. She got a chance to meet him for the very first time. And as she got to know him, talked to him face to face for the first time, she realized something.
4: Realize how my personality,
2: when I met him, so I can see me in him. So I don't feel like,
5: oh, I'm not just a, a girl that's picking up from some trash again.
2: <laughs> she no longer came from trash. She believed that she came from someone this time.
1: Lynn, your mom is so cute. And tell me, so um, I don't think a lot of people know so much about the just Amerasians during and after the Vietnam War. And so for you, was this a story that you knew for a while about your mom? So tell me, like, when was the first time she talked about this?
2: So, how she got to America, I kind of always knew. I was like, she was always like, oh, I um, came because I was looking for my dad. And at that time, if you were looking for your American father, you could bring your whole family. So it was a way for my grandmother and my mother and and my grandmother's children to escape, you know, a war ridden country and um, look for something better. But I didn't know the extent of it until I did this interview. And I was like, let me look into it. Let me know what the name is of this act. And then it just kind of like blossomed in front of me. And I realized, wow, I mean, this must've been such a common thing for it to be passed in Congress. That was really mind boggling. And then also the story of her meeting her father, I was there when she called. So I was nine, my brother was seven, and then she was pregnant with my third brother. So we were actually all there for her when she made that phone call. But you know, it's crazy like knowing the facts, but then interviewing her and then asking her, how did you feel? I don't think we ask that question enough our parents beyond like knowing the facts it's like how did you feel i didn't know she finally felt like she was something more than trash i mean that to hear that like broke my heart to show how resilient she is so that was really cool
1: oh i love that and did you get to meet your grandfather
2: too i did um so when she did meet him for the first time we all got got to meet him and it was like a, a surreal moment um you find yourself trying to pick out the physical pieces where you find similar you know it, it's it's very very cool
1: Aww. so is mom watching now she sure is ah! Hi, mom. hey mom we
6: <laughs> next we have julian sapariti from portland oregon julian is a phd student and musician performing under the name no no boy His song, Tell Hanoi I Love Her, is from his next album, 1975, which is about his mom's family history and other Asian American stories. The Smithsonian will release the album in the spring of 2021. Without any further ado, let's check out Julian's video. Twice Southern.
7: Twice Twice Southern with two civil wars fool to think that this place could ever be yours The in-between, that's where we must explore Tell Hanoi I love her Jenny's mother in the nail salon Bedazzled star-spangled t-shirt Tiger Mom Saw the flag on my hat Told me to take it off Tell Hanoi I I keep no grudge against some old world kin. Not letting go now, that's a body side sin. I, I name my Chrysler after Ho Chi Minh. Tell Hanoi I love you. Cast election, cast a ballot for 45 If I'd seen what she seen, I might see her side Tell Hanoi I love her I dream of junks all to sail away And wash your feet on a beach in Halong Bay My mother said once that's where dragons lay Tell Hanoi I love her And we die just as needlessly. Once I thought there was just one of me. Tell Hanoi I love her. Fumble with numbers, I just wanna sing. There's nothing sadder than some cook with an American dream. Sometimes I think.
6: Awesome. Thanks so much, Julian, for sharing that song with us. Could you tell us yeah, a little bit about um, your inspiration for the song?
0: Sure. Um, I uh, have a much larger project as part of my PhD work and just being a musician called No No Boy, which is looking at uh, not only my family history, but the Asian-American experience through research and songwriting and films. And uh, that song, uh, while I am, just moved to Portland before the quarantine because my mom had moved out here, actually. Uh, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, originally. And um, it sort of explores being a southerner twice over, you know, my family being from South Vietnam on my mom's side and having to leave and uh, being from Nashville, Tennessee. And these are two wonderful, beautiful, complicated uh, cultures, you know, that have a lot of uh, entanglements with war and trauma and flags and symbols and things like that. And I remember talking to my mom as I began exploring these stories more and more about our family and my mom saying, oh, you know, yeah, you're anti-voted for Trump last election. And I was just really shocked by that because my consciousness as an Asian American kind of arose late in life, but it kind of arose with this sort of activist, progressive kind of thing. And then I looked into it and a third of us, you know, vote uh, that way. And uh, not to condemn anyone or anything, this song is just sort of trying to understand that, trying to understand the history that people might've gone through, especially first generation refugees, and why they might be more conservative or vote differently or think very differently than I do. And the same thing about my people from Tennessee, you know, why we're so divided right now. And so it's an effort to try to understand that, to have a conversation, but at the same time, um, in an effort to make the present better by exploring your history. And I think, you know, I would be remiss if we didn't bring up how heavy this week has been for a lot of people and how one of those four officers was a Southeast Asian brother in Minnesota. And I hope he gets, uh, you know, the justice that is coming to him. But I also hope that he can be a learning experience, especially for Asian-Americans, that there are times where you should get off the sidelines, not necessarily in a political way, but in a humanitarian kind of way. And I think that's something that the Vietnamese community could have some really interesting conversations about. So
6: sort of what the song and a lot of this project pushes. Absolutely. I had so many of the same kind of like thoughts and reactions that you had this week as well. Something else that really intrigued me with your submission was uh, the videos that you chose to kind of like weave in and out with yeah. your song. Could you tell us a little bit about how you decided to pick those videos or if they have any special like meaning or connection to you?
0: Well, first of all, if anyone watching has a relative name, Andre, um, who went to college in the 70s in California, who's a Vietnamese refugee, please um, send him this and get him in touch. Cause that's just archival footage that a college student shot in the 70s of this Vietnamese talent show. And I wanted to cut that with scenes of the fall of Saigon and the communist flag being raised. You know, something that was very traumatic for my family when it happened, but something that is is very complicated, I think as you get further away, like as a second generation. So I wanted to weave the black and white footage with this very, just vietnamese kids in america like my mom became um, going to college and having fun
1: our next storyteller is hop Nguyen. she comes to us from los angeles california hop is a performer and visual artist personic medium and healing arts workshop and event coordinator she's the daughter of two vietnamese refugees and wants to pay homage to her resilient and beautiful lineage
3: in her wrote memory of english she told me it was a bastard language then facing me asked what language did i dare dream in my parents broke this language with their own tongues mouths unaccustomed to making room for emptied guns with english instructions on how to go on killing themselves it's bad enough that there came a day where they had Learn to respond in French as if possessed. The waitress asks me what my parents' orders are. I ask myself to simply understand where she is coming from. Where my father remains seated for the star-spangled banner, I can almost swear he is free exasperation picking at the something in my teeth when making a customer service call while my mother prefaces each concern of hers with can I ask you a question but never tires when the other person asks her to repeat herself spells sounded out confirm that she will pay in American money with a decadently indecipherable Atlantic blue that stains redder than the millisecond bombs decide to drop kids off at school, kiss goodbyes, goodbye, lock eyes with stand still that can clearly recall August pouring atop laughter as the front yard hibiscus gets wind of a terran sky, simultaneous to the kind of shudder that can recognize the shape your spirit becomes out at night. Teeth-bearing in the dark, awakened by the children that cry, on mundi with so much salt left over that their bodies are left pristine, Your generous memory that both make a miracle of you, And await your hands to show themselves, in the arms they would take up, etched in context, And again and again, out of the blue, Bodies going quiet and return to a formlessness that goes beyond language, in the thickest of skin that remembers every breeze that came to graze chins, flip palms, tuck a smile in the lining of time or in the belly where it would erupt into something like my name, which is really just Vietnam's landscape on fire and because of this I remember my solubility, I remember it hurt you when I almost died under the same sky sailing different waters that promised you home Promised me you would be what last laughs dissolve into.
1: Hop, welcome. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Let me just ask you: You, I think, were one of the few that submitted poetry, and it really touched us. And tell me why you wanted to share your story in a form of poetry.
8: I find that the um, the Vietnamese language to be so insightful and naturally poetic and rhythmic in nature. Um, words like tuong hai, right? Just clear as day, but it's like, it's to the point, but it's also so, it's such a memory. It's such like a understanding of the ocean. And so that's why I felt called to write it in this form, because that's the form that love and music and dreams take on for me, um, which I also feel is what, my ancestors experienced. And so, yeah, I'm just grateful that this is how it came into a physical kind of, um, yeah, like
1: understanding. <laughs> no, I totally get it. We, we did an interview um, last year with the author Tan Ha Lai. And she told me, she's, uh, her first book was, a, was in a form of poetry. And she said, for her, the Vietnamese language is like poetry and the way we tell stories in vietnamese it's like poetry so it's almost very natural for her um for you like what's that creative process like like did this piece take you a long time or did it come naturally
8: i don't know how to define a long time if it's like the right amount of time i guess this piece came to me most of it came to me two years ago and then some of it came to me when this was prompted um and so it's interesting to see and understand the course of things because the course of any kind of creative process is just like a walk or sometimes it's a march and sometimes it's a dance or a growing feeling um and it takes on all these kind of ways to just reach you right i don't have like a very cut and clear uh creative process i just i guess i um i try to ask myself questions i try to stay curious and the process shows because it's just the course i feel that sometimes it's interesting i i have a few questions to share just because i am doing some kind of work with addressing the prison industrial complex right now and some of the questions that came to me this morning while I was trying to sit down and write a piece I feel also can like hold some space here and some of these questions which I think guide my creative process are you know what is the road back to home and how will you survive with the voice and how do you even free yourself if that's something that occurs to you with the sound of your own presence how do you know you were welcome here and does your voice take the shape of your body and what room does it take in the unknown i i feel like with writing sometimes you can pick it up and kind of leave it somewhere and walk away from that but with sound with oral tradition it still finds way to reach you because it travels and so my creative process is definitely involved with sound, anything that's spoken aloud because it, it's immediately moving. Um, and I have a deeper understanding of my ancestry this way because I still feel their songs, their presence, their words, their prayers.
6: Our next storyteller uh, is Du Ngak Nguyen. Du Ngak just finished her first year studying at Smith College and is the first in her family to attend college in the US. Uh, She was born in Houston and grew up in a predominantly Hispanic community. So when she was able to only connect to her Vietnamese culture through her parents' stories and through events and gatherings. Welcome and let's check out her video.
9: My father told this story often. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago in Vietnam, there were two sisters named When the Chinese had held land, they rose up to be Vietnam's greatest heroes, reclaiming Vietnamese territory. They were queens. Queens? I asked excitedly. I loved how he would end the story. Ngọc, ba kể những câu chuyện này để con hiểu rằng lịch sử của nước Việt Nam mình có nhiều đàn bà mạnh mẽ, thông minh và xuất sắc. My determined seven-year-old self would wish to be as amazing as he wanted me to be, while it was unclear to me how I'd embark on the journey to greatness or know when I'd reach it. My father's purpose in the Vietnam War was to fight for unity. After that war was lost, he came to the States, married my mother, and together they had me. While other children bonded with their parents over dinner, games, laughter, and conversations, my upbringing consisted of stories. Stories of ancient battles and war tactics, stories of my father's treacherous journey to escape the North Vietnamese prison labor camps, stories of how my mother grew up as a child gathering firewood deep in the dark forests surrounding her dilapidated home and stories of hunger and thirst, stories of how lucky I am to be born in a country like the U.S. in a time of peace. My parents raised me on stories. These stories have shaped my sense of self-worth, challenging me to be great enough, to deserve all the hardships and sacrifices that my ancestors have lived through. And today I am grappling with my newfound truth. There's beauty in believing that I can be great, but it terrifies me that I won't be. It's not enough that in the future I make money, that I have friends and family to be by my side, or that I'm happy. A part of me reaches for more than I can say. I yearn for greatness. I yearn for greatness, even if I'm unsure what that journey looks like, where to start, or what greatness even is. The only guide I have exists in the beautiful tragic and heroic stories of my ancestors and even with this guide there are answers that only I can answer. Is greatness a gut feeling? Is it a place? Is it recognition? How will I know when I achieve it? Will I even know it when I'm there or will I always want more, more than I have and live my life where I constantly move the finish line a little further down the track and never reach it?
6: awesome thanks so much for sharing that so you mentioned being terrified of your journey to being great and also how you yearn for that and i feel like a lot of you know like us first generation vietnamese like feel that statement a lot and those sentiments a lot so what does success look like in the future for you uh and how do you think that differs from what it looks like for maybe like your parents
10: for on- honestly i my or successor- Everything that I think in my world what what I think success looks like for me is so warped by like what I want and then what um what my history what my history brings with me, what my ancestors did. There is a very high bar that they set for me. It's not a competition, but I want to live in a way that when from where they are now and where I am in a much older version of me can look back on and be proud of. I still don't know what that looks like. I'm 19 years old. I'm still in college. I have a lot of questions, a lot of uncertainty still. And I think in the end, like what I for sure want to do is to um, leave an impact with storytelling. Like today, this is a step towards that. Um, I want to leave an impact in through public policy. And I wonder how storytelling can really add that that framework into public policy today and this is that's how success looks like for me at this moment and my parents don't see it that way but they support me I think unlike a lot of the horror stories not horror stories but just stories Mm -hmm. of my friends who have tougher parents my parents are very supportive and I'm so grateful that despite not knowing what I'm doing not knowing what public policy work looks like for an Asian American woman, they are proud of me every step of the way. And that is the energy that I feed off of and live for. So yeah, I'm very grateful. I have great parents and a great sister, fantastic sister.
6: No, absolutely. I relate that so much because similarly, awesome parents, awesome sister. And I think it's like really amazing that you're following just what feels genuine and like right to you to follow for your path. And you did say also that your parents like raised you on lots of different stories. How do you think you took those stories with you kind of like to discover yourself?
10: There, there is so much inspiration. I never met my grandmother from my father's side. She was a doctor in her time and I'm not going to be a doctor, but hearing the goodness, the kindness, the visiting her village, And getting to talk to people that knew her, I didn't know her and and knew her and could tell from their hearts, my grandmother did this. She helped deliver their baby. She helped give them money for this. Like all of these people knew her in the way that I never got to, but that is the kind of woman I want to be, like my grandmother and hearing about my grandfather, hearing about my my grandparents, my mother's side, all they did. And like history, like these queens from a long time ago. Um, They are all inspiration. They are setting the bar for me, and I hope I meet this bar for myself and that I can make perhaps um, a change and impact with all this knowledge and possibly have some lessons that I learned for future generations.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I think you're well on your way. I saw one of our comments in the chat was viewing off for president. So you got some supporters. (laughs) We'll see.
1: All right, so next up uh, we have Cavi Vo, and uh, Kavi is from Atlanta, Georgia. She is a Vietnamese-American poet and videographer based in Georgia, and her story is on journal reflections from her sister who escaped Vietnam in 1988. She sees her sister as a family's hero, and Kavi lives to tell these stories. So let's take a look at her video.
11: Bungryu is really special to me because when I was a kid, my mom would make it every Monday her day off from the nail salon and the following are excerpts from my sister's gratitude journal um, where she reflects on her days in the refugee camps when she was just five years old Thankful for my tap water Each person received a bucket when we got to Pulau Bidome. We got in line every day to get our bucket filled and bring it back to the longhouse. This water was used for cooking, drinking, bathing, and anything that required fresh water in a 24-hour period. Thankful for the big rat problem on our refugee island. For that reason, the men would hunt at night and for every dead rat you turn in, you get a bag of instant noodles. My aunts always said, they're not good for you, so we only once in a while get to eat them. They saved us the healthier foods. People got very creative and made many different dishes out of these instant noodles. My favorite, Mi Gaw caramelized noodles. Maybe my daughter Mushu will get to eat it one day, when I figure out how. thankful for Facebook, last night I just found the stranger who carried me across the Cambodian jungle because my short legs could not keep up with everyone during our secret escape from the communists almost 30 years ago. I was five then and he was probably a teenager traveling on his own. He didn't have to carry me on his back because it would have slowed him down and risked him getting caught, but he did. I am forever grateful for his courage and bravery. Of course, we're no longer strangers now, because I call him Uncle. I can't wait to one day introduce my children to him, my hero. Thankful for my Fitbit and phone and alarms. I'm not sure how we were able to get to school or church or our very important interviews on time since we never had clocks or watches. I remember these public intercom announcements each day with news, or when a new boat would arrive so you could go out and check if you knew anyone, or when people get to leave to a better destination, or just music. Perhaps that was how we knew the time.
1: Kavey, you're making me hungry. (laughs) (laughs) I know everyone's saying that (laughs) in the (laughs) chat. So funny. Welcome. I love this one. It's one of the few that we had that connected us back to food, which is such a huge part of our culture, I think. Um, So just talk a little bit about the inspiration behind it and why you chose to use food to tell your sister's story.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So during this quarantine, I think uh, a lot of people are getting really creative with their time. And my mom has always told me that I need to learn how to cook and sew and do all the, all the things to get a husband. And so eventually I was like, okay, I guess I'll finally learn how to cook. But I'm really bad at it. And um, T-Boy, the author, has this graphic that shows you how to make to cop. And so um, as a videographer, when I was trying to make the tit call, I just put it into a recipe video and um, the Vietnamese American round table reached out to me and said they were gonna do um, an April 30th, Remembrance day online. And they wanted me to use one of their recipes. And the second I saw the video, I was like, I've always wanted to make this, let's do it. And I wanted to add some depth to it. So after we created the recipe video, um, I played with adding some spoken word to it, been doing spoken word for a little while now, and nothing felt quite right. And then the second I found my sister's journal entries, I just recorded it as they were. And, and without romanticizing it or proofreading it, it's, it's just perfect as it is.
1: And how long ago did she write those journals? Like, was she young or was this recent? It's pretty recent. Um,
4: I, I think that she never reflected on those times until I started doing more storytelling and um, Asian American advocacy work when I started kind of pulling it out of her and then writing it down for our family. Is, I, I think that sometimes the pain is too, too much, but just one more time, if we could just ask them to tell it to
1: us. Yes, and you made making Bung look easy, but I actually think it's quite hard.
4: (laughs) It wasn't as easy as I thought it would be.
1: (laughs) But yeah, the video makes it look really easy. You made it look so effortless. Um, So tell us about Atlanta, Georgia. What's the Vietnamese community like there?
4: It is alive and thriving. We have, I think Vietnamese is the fourth uh, most spoken language in Georgia. And Atlanta, I mean, we have all the really good food. Unfortunately, not a lot of uh, restaurants here make bun so I guess my favorite spot to have bun is at home. But we have a lot of big Vietnamese communities here. Yeah, and a big Asian American community
1: here. That's great. Well, if you don't mind sharing your bun recipe with all of us, we'll try it during this quarantine. Yes, of course. Let's move on to our next storyteller. We have Trammy Lai from New York um, City with us, so close to home for me. Trammy is a first-generation-born American who lives in the city. She's always been passionate about Vietnamese heritage and is looking for different ways to use her voice to promote the culture. Let's take a look at Trammy's video.
5: dài đừng có làm như vậy con. Child, do not do that in your áo dài. Don't run, don't sit like that, and don't climb trees. So those are some of the things that my mother told me uh, whenever I wore this as a child, this traditional Vietnamese wear. You know, I think she wanted to make sure, first of all, that I didn't ruin this. Um, But I think she was also trying to teach me that Vietnamese women should behave a certain way or act a certain way because this silk dress represents something, right? But when you're eight, you don't know that. And it took me a long time to figure out what it meant for me. Um, I was born in San Jose, California, and then I lived in Oklahoma City for a while, and now I live in New York City. And yet, my first word was "ba." It was not DAD, it was not DADA, it was "ba," And so I was constantly trying to figure out what percentage of me was Vietnamese and what parts of me were American and how did these two work together. And I had my parents telling me one thing and I had history books, especially the United States, telling me what the Vietnamese experience should be. And... Um, i learned that while those stories are important they're not necessarily my story or that of my parents and so at at one point i decided that you know instead of trying to figure out what the perfect vietnamese american person should be there's that's something i'm going to have to define for myself and that it's going to look different for every vietnamese american out there and so if it means sitting like this sometimes hi mom Um, or if it means having very different stories i think it's part of learning and accepting that all of our narratives are valid different and part of the bigger story and so i'm excited for this next generation of authors, documentarians, entrepreneurs, to add their voice to this narrative. So this was just my two cents. Um, thank you for listening. I hope it was interesting and I hope to hear back from other people. And I wanna know what your story is. So thanks for letting me share.
1: Trammy, I love that you started the story with the Aoyai. Tell me about that. Why did you choose to start the story with the iconic Vietnamese traditional dress?
5: Hi, Tracy. Thanks for having me. So the traditional Vietnamese dress, I, I think there's maybe three main reasons uh, why I went with that. First of all, it's very personal, right? When I put that on, I feel ethereal. I have a mystic connection to this homeland that I was not born in. and Second, I think, you know, it's timeless, right? Because even after a conflict like the war that has resulted in, let's say, a a lack of cohesion between the Vietnamese people who live overseas and the people who live in the country, that Aoyhai is the one piece of fabric that every single Vietnamese person on this planet can agree on, that it's Vietnamese. Um, And last, like you said, it's iconic. So you've, you see it in Western pop culture, you see it in Miss Universe like pageants, and you see it in, in, in history books. I mean, for example, Madame Yu was always, well, not always, but she was often photographed in an immaculate aoyai, right? So it's very recognizable. And with that comes context and preconceived notions that I think are often framed through a Western lens. And so I wanted to take back something that was very Vietnamese and redefine it and evolve it. Because I mean, like, as you know, growing up um, Vietnamese in the States, you're often told what it should be. And on the other side of it, my parents are also telling me things. So when my mom said, don't do that in your ao yai, um, She said it out of love, right? She wanted me to belong. And the problem was I found that I didn't quite belong in Vietnam, I'm too Americanized, and I don't always belong here, and I think everyone here could relate to that. And the current experience for the Vietnamese diaspora has no template. There are no rules and instructions on how this works, and I should learn how to figure it out for myself. i see it as a, a responsibility but also an opportunity to define for ourselves what it means to be vietnamese american
1: yeah and it sounds like you've come to terms with the comfort level of kind of being this hybrid you know between american vietnamese vietnamese american so when would you say you started kind of embracing it more
5: i would say recently so in when you're in san jose like one of the largest Vietnamese communities, it's, it's there, it's very commonplace. It wasn't until I moved away to Oklahoma, which actually has a pretty large Vietnamese community, that I realized how special we were and that not everyone got to learn the, the Vietnamese stories that I did from going to Vietnamese school in San Jose, because there was no Vietnamese school. You'd have to learn it from church or temple. And then when I came to New York City, I became very proud of it and I actually wrote an essay most recently for the 45th anniversary of the war and I, I kind of had the chance to process what it really meant to me. And my parents had, you know, they always want me to like be successful, but they also want me to or like said earlier. and That means to become a good person, an actualized person and a contributing member of society. And especially in the current state of our society, this is my home now. And I'm never not gonna be Vietnamese. I will always look like this. And my parents fought to be here and they fight to be accepted here. And so I will continue to fight here in this place that's my home.
6: Our next presenter is Cindy Nguyen, uh, who's from Providence, Rhode Island, by way of Garden Grove, California. Cindy is a filmmaker, historian of Vietnam, and an educator at Brown University. Due to the current COVID-19 situation, she is physically separated from her family across the East and West Coast. She put together the story footage and hope for time when she can be uh, reunited with her family again.
1: Great, so let's take a look at her video.
12: My family speaks a particular linguistic formula of 1990s Little Saigon Vietnamese. We just moved here. The market has a sale, five pounds of apples for one buck. Today is Christmas. It's a familial language of living history. And it was a language that I was raised on. Before I found my time structured by rhesus and English grammar, I absorbed the world around me. I helped my mom cut away the loose threads of her day's garment work. I watched Vietnamese children's karaoke, Thea Jan, and learned about sweeping the house, playing with fireworks, and cooking for your grandparents. Sitting cross legged on the floor, I traced my mom's handwriting of my name, Nguyen Pi Kiman. Utterances of sacrifice, duty, and reputation inserted themselves between meals and commercial breaks. These were the Vietnamese words that guided my every day. But then I started to learn a new language at school. This language had other rules, speech patterns, and ideals. It was unlike the Catholic creeds my grandmother whispered or the ethics of family forever first. New authority figures who did not look like my parents told me, good job. You can be whoever you want to be. Everyone is different. Cindy has a flat nose. Teacher, you plagiarized. Your English essay is too good. Classmate, you are a communist. And I would say, no, I'm not. I came to America on a boat. And then everyone would laugh. A different set of pronouns and names governed my existence. At school, I was a neutral pronoun, I and the newly chosen name Cindy Nguyen I would enunciate slowly each day during roll call. Yes, it's okay, you don't need to bother with my real name. At home, I was child, gone, and the affectionate term of endearment, little one, ba. I never questioned if I was fluent in English or Vietnamese until that stale, suburban afternoon during my third-grade parent-teacher conference when my mom screeched, my children talk English good. She not ESL. She do good job in school. I remember it very clearly as a screech because all the little hairs along the back of my neck stood on end. I replayed in my head, not what my mother said, but how she said it. I wanted her to stop speaking because it resembled the scratching of distorted static The slow undoing of Velcro shoes, something I yearned for during Catholic confession, something I feared. She sounded foreign, bizarre, comedic even. That day, I learned that the English language could be something called broken.
6: Right, thanks so much for sharing that with us, Cindy. I loved uh, the family footage that you were able to incorporate. Um, and I also found so much of the imagery of your words to be so strong. Like the analogy with the Velcro shoes was like super powerful, it like stopped me in my tracks. Like how do you think that moment shaped your life?
13: Well, I originally wrote this piece when I was living in Vietnam. Um, and at that time I was confronting my language capacity and where that was coming from. I was born in a refugee camp in Pitong, and I grew up most of my time in Little Saigon, Orange County, California. And that, like for me, I was so surrounded by a very specific like formulation of Vietnamese that's so tied to my family, to the 90s, to this, to growing up, to going through ESL and all of that. And I think when I was writing it and like living in Vietnam and reflecting back, I remember confronting this Tremendous sense of loss, and this interwoven relationship between language and loss. I felt like I had lost something from my past because I could not express the adult version of Cindy that I wanted to express. And at first, when I wrote this piece, it just it felt really heavy, and I and I think I needed to go through that. But when I finally kind of thought more about this special artifact or living archive of of our 90s Vietnamese formulation, I started to feel just the sense of like bittersweet celebration of those textures of our language. Like for example, I thought the word like to move is move. Like I didn't think that when I was speaking in Vietnam, I'm like, you Vietnam, Vietnam I'm actually saying like, oh yeah, that and then like, or like, well, what's that? And I'm like, that's Vietnamese uh, or things like other words, like buck, instead of buck, instead of buck. So it's just like, I started to feel proud of that formulation and to recognize just how language changes and transforms. And you could reimbue that with a new relationship as you just grow up and become an adult.
6: And you had mentioned just now moving from California. Now you're in Providence, Rhode Island. Like, what's, What have you found to be like the biggest changes from moving from one place to the other? I've kind of had like a similar situation, even though it's within the same state of going from a place that kind of like it has a lot of opportunities uh, to connect with Vietnamese Americans to a place that maybe not so much. How have you found that transition? And do you feel like you have found your own like Viet community there?
13: I find, I find that I'm finding my community right here right now in a special way too. Um, mm-hmm. And I find that the physical movement, uh, I mean, I've been away from Little Saigon for decades now and I, left to college and then I went to pursue my PhD and then I moved to Vietnam. And then now I'm in Providence, Rhode Island because I, uh, I'm i a postdoctoral fellow and I teach Vietnamese history at Brown. So for me, creating community is, I mean, there's two parts to that. First is like the creation aspect and then the community aspect. So the mm-hmm. creation like happens um, in so many novel ways. Like when I had the chance to teach my students about Vietnamese history and the power of narrative and learning, about a lot of my students actually are of Southeast Asian heritage and I teach about history of Southeast Asia. And it's so empowering to have that moment that we are creating and understanding together, a new narrative of history and understanding its complexity. And then the other side of which is community, I find um, the chance to just connect. I mean, I connect with people in uh, the community in Boston, which and there's a Boston Providence a rivalry that I'm just familiarizing myself with. Maybe Boston Mm -hmm. doesn't recognize us, but that's okay. Um, And I think it's just like, I think what is really cool about this community aspect is wherever I am, I've been able to connect with people from all over, from like my time in Vietnam and getting involved in like the poetic arts community there, being here and connecting with all of you. And I think it's like the ability to move between places that gives us that time to really think about movement and language in a very unique way, where it's not just like the physical movement between things, but it's like how we talk about that movement, and how we think about it. So I'm hoping that like, in the time that I'm at Brown, I'm actually producing a longer poetic documentary arts film called Translating Across Time and Space that meditates on this notion of movement. And the words that we use describe that movement from like Moo to Buit lien, which was like so much, that was the only type of movement that I knew about growing up because it was about border crossing. But I didn't know it was border crossing because that was a specific <laughs> word. I just thought that's how everybody moves. So it was just like this notion that these words from Guahug and Home, to long Bit On, they all have this different texture to it that is tied to a time and a place.
1: So Cindy, I when I was in school, there were not many Vietnamese professors. So I'd love to hear the one thing that you hope you bring to your students or that they take away from being in, a, in one of your courses.
13: It's, it's been a really hard time to be a teacher right now. I mean, to be any, a human right now, honestly. Um, but I think after teaching through and during the pandemic, something I really, really hope that my students carry it through from my class is the opportunity to learn to cultivate compassion because i find that that's what history is it's the ability to understand the context the complexity to recognize that there's all these different kind of causal factors that shape who people are and how they respond to a specific moment and it takes a tremendous surrender and confrontation with your own maybe biases or your own limitations of knowledge to just recognize that wow, people have gone through completely different experiences than I have. And I'm only barely scratching that surface of understanding. But by coming with this like generous spirit of compassion, I could better just understand others, but also myself.
1: So our next storyteller, we have David Kazan from Dallas, Texas. David's parents are immigrants from Vietnam who came here during the war to seek freedom. He wants to share his opinion and perspective of what it's like to be raised here in America against the contrast of what it's like for his parents when they fled to America. So let's take a look at David's piece.
14: I want to talk about my parents' view um, of life here in the States. Although they missed the freedom South Vietnam and some culture, they have said that they have adapted well and are so grateful for the life that they have. My dad, particularly, for some reason, when he came to this country in 1975, he knew that he couldn't expect to be treated fairly as a foreigner coming into this country with absolutely nothing to give. No money, no English, no culture, no skill set that he knew of that, you know, Americans would want. Just a big question mark. Um, But parents being grateful and even being bullied at workplaces and in public hand over hand... I just want to say that they're just tough cookies, and I'm extremely proud of them. They never complained, and they never passed down that they were being, they were bullied ever until recently when we had to extract that from them and ask them. So they just kept quiet and kept on chugging, um, just tough. And another part of being grateful, they say, is due to the fact that how much they cared about their children and their success. Um, and, and I say this because they knew that they had a, uh, were in a country that had so much resources to become whoever you wanted to be. And that way, that flowed down flowed down into the first generation Asian American children who have to take the now responsibility to please their parents, meaning doing good in school, doing good in technical activities like band, orchestra, STEM programs. And while we now shifted towards, you know, the Asian American children mindset, you know, speaking from my own opinion, I think it was a little bit tough. I think the hardest thing about It was being raised in an all-American lifestyle that consisted of 24-7 fun, partying, riding dirt bikes, um, just being laid back and stress-free, to the alignment of my parents who were very serious about your career and having to do anything that helped out your future. And if it didn't, then there was so much tension in the household. Uh, My mom wouldn't even drop me and my brother off at the library almost every day during the summer during the summer where kids are supposed to play there's no school going on and i'm not talking about an hour i'm talking about a work shift so i thought that was tough uh on the other hand what defines tough right um how do we know as children and being the first generation born on american soil that the definition of a hard life as our parents share all these horror stories of for example pirates being pirates raping women and children um, off the coast during the war when families just wanted to use boats to get out of the north and south war front lines. My mom was harassed over and over. My dad drank his own urine as the last alternative of dehydration, being on a floating barge for days. When he transferred onto a bigger ship, uh, via cargo net, he looked back and he saw 20, 40 women, men, children just laying there, uh, behind, dead, being, after being trampled or sick and dehydrated. He saw a lady in front of him lose her own infant while trying to transfer on the cargo net to a bigger ship while the water wakes put her off balance. I mean, she cried nonstop for weeks. My, tra- my dad traveled with his younger brother on feet from Hue to Phan Diet, um, to avoid the North Vietnamese takeover. But last minute, his younger brother just said he couldn't leave his, his, his mom, his dad, his family, and he headed back. And right there, they exchanged currency to his little brother for anything material value to my dad um, that he could take on his who knows what journey that he was going on at the age of 28. Um, And that's just the beginning. So is it tough for us?
1: Hi, so tell us about um, just making that story and comparing kind of like you complaining on certain things and putting yourselves in perspective when you think about what tough really means for your parents. Like how much of that story did you know before and how much does it resonate now as you're getting older?
14: Yeah, it's a great question. Really before, I didn't know much at all. You know, growing up as a kid, they were, they were so mute on that. Um, and there was no culture, there, there was no language barrier to the parents, to the kids. I wanna clarify that. Um, they speak English in the house. Um, if They bicker, they speak English to get, together um, to the kids. So their English was great. Um, they really kept quiet. They never mentioned any hardships on them. It was always about us as the children. So hats off to two parents that raise up four kids. Not easy when my dad's working 12 hours, 14 hours mainly. Um, every day at John Deere, um, you know, trying to make a living while the mom, you know, raises four just wild wheels off kids. Um, shame on us, but you know, it's, it's a conflict that I kind of bring up is we love the American lifestyle of freedom and, and having all these resources as fun, right? Going on airplanes, helicopters, dirt bikes, land, having campfires, fireworks, all that jazz. And that misalignment with education, which is usually, you know, subjective to success in your future um, is usually um, there's some tension in the household, so.
1: Because I could imagine that part of why they might have been reserved, or you had mentioned in the story that they didn't, they kept quiet, even though they were being bullied or there was uh, racism against them when they came to the U.S. Um, do you think, I mean, I can imagine part of that is just the upbringing of our parents' generation. But today we're kind of raised to be very vocal, right? and to stand up for what we believe in or to stand up for ourselves. So I'm curious to hear, you know, observing your parents in, in that fashion and then you kind of putting that on the platform on a stage like this, did they influence you to be that way? Or was there a certain reason why you wanted to be more vocal because you observed them being so much more quieter?
14: um yeah you know, i did i did overthink about this subject you know we grew up in a town of one percent two percent population that was um, asian-american so maybe if they had a community together they might have had more comfort to out to speak uh you know and really throughout the 30 years that they lived there at the time they didn't have two friends to say i mean um they're great people but they just didn't have friends outside um so maybe that's part of the reasons why they think maybe there wasn't a connection to vocalize to anybody, right? Because the first thing you want to do is go to a family or friend and say, man, this is really wrong. Maybe they didn't have anyone to go to, maybe they had just each other. Um, that's something I have to, you know, still drill into, but um, absolutely, when you talk about these days and how we're more open to um, being a little bit hypersensitive and, and making sure that things are, are weighed in what's right and what's wrong, and we have voice and the social media now, right? We can expose things. We have uh, people video camera and everything. Um, it's a really great movement. and it's a it's great movement for us to, to bring up items um, that are, I think should be prioritized, but um, that are against our culture, against just everyone. And we really need to unite and, and, and be vocal about that and keep on using social media to our advantage, keep on using our, you know, our phones to, to expose what's right and what's wrong and hopefully make progress on that. And right now is a really tough time. I know for the Asian community, and it is right to vocalize that and really stay strong together as a community. I think the community is a big part uh, of why maybe they they didn't have that voice back then.
6: Uh, Our next storyteller is Lauren Nguyen from New Orleans, Louisiana. She's currently pursuing her MFA with a concentration in graphic design at LSU in Baton Rouge, uh, where she is called on bringing forward issues and experiences within the Vietnamese American community using her skills as a designer. Uh, let's take a look at Lauren's piece now.
1: Lauren's submission is a story told through animation depicting a child who was made fun of during lunch for the Vietnamese food she ate. Ashamed of this, she succumbed to packing peanut butter and jelly sandwiches as a way to fit in at school. Later in life, when she attends college, a community of other Vietnamese students helped her reconnect and embrace her culture. You can view this heartwarming animation, the cafeteria, on our website at vietnameseboatpeople.org forward slash story slam.
6: Awesome. Welcome, Lauren. We love the creativity with your animation. I really enjoyed one of the comments that said, How did you find a picture of me as a child? Um, <laughs> similarly, I was like, How did she like perfectly illustrate my little sister when she was like five? So, I guess to start off, what was um, the food in your lunch at the beginning of, of your story
1: so before you I had chose, the
6: AD&J?
15: Yeah, so I chose to do Tit Call because I wanted to choose. Um, Food that was homey, something that was um, that you that your mom could cook for you, and something that was home homemade. Um, I didn't want to choose a food that was mainstream right now, and that was the reason why I, I chose tikka. Mm-hmm.
6: No, I could totally relate because I had tikka. I can't count how many times packed in my lunch <laughs> growing up. Your video spoke to me a lot because I felt the same way a lot of times, mm-hmm. and. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that feeling was like when you started to maybe embrace what was in your lunch more when you got older?
15: When I was younger, I never really appreciated my culture. I really didn't appreciate being Vietnamese. I didn't really appreciate uh, where I came from. And the, in my video, the sandwich was a form of rejection of my culture symbol of rejection for my culture and by showing that um, when I went through through my childhood I, I rejected my culture and then up until when I was in college and actually found a community of people that looked like me that accepted me for who I am that's when I was more accepting of my food my culture and my people and yeah college college was a time when what when I found my acceptance for
6: my culture. Well I was oh, you about to say something.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say Lauren that um you're definitely so talented. So you made the right career switch. I am curious like what that was like to mentally transition from studying medicine to then being a designer going into the creative field.
15: Yeah. Um I actually graduated uh, undergrad with a biology degree. So I finished biology. And I was going to apply for dental school last year when I graduated. But in my head, I was I was like, you know, being a doctor is not what I wanted to do. I don't wanna spend the rest of my life being a doctor. And, and so my friends, my boyfriend, my mentors, my teachers, they all encouraged me to, instead of going to dental school, um, apply for my MFA instead. And so that transition was really terrifying because for one I felt like I was um I was disappointing my parents and and I was letting go of my parents sacrifices for me as um as a Vietnamese American and they they sacrificed so much for me leaving a war torn country going somewhere where they didn't know with nothing with nothing in their pockets and um so it was really terrifying and really I, I guess I felt a little bit ashamed to to move from medical to art.
1: So yeah, it was it was a very trying time for me. Well you're so talented and we think you made the right move.
6: Yeah, so talented. It was such a powerful animation that you did. I think it like really touched a lot of us. Yeah, so I'm
15: I'm hoping to create more, um, more work that involves the Vietnamese community and Asian American community in the future, especially for my thesis coming up um, in another year. So that's, I'm really excited about that.
1: So the last one, but certainly not least, I'd like to um, share with you the next clip is from Quentin Nguyen Nguyen, and he is from Brooklyn, New York. Quinton is a recent graduate of Boston University with a degree in theater arts. He was inspired to participate in the Story Slam by recent prejudices against Asian Americans due to the ignorance surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's take a look at his story.
16: So I've never been proud of being Asian American, per se. I grew up in a rural white community in Oregon, and my last name is so jumbled up that no one can really pronounce it. Including myself, to be honest, I still don't really know how to pronounce my name correctly. But uh, I grew up without my dad, I grew up with a white mom, and I grew up primarily playing white roles because I'm an actor. And this all changed when I got a casting call for a play called Viet that was going up at Company One in Boston my junior year of college. Um, up until then, I'd only played roles in like Neil Simon plays and like been an ensemble member in like The King and I like miss saigon so (laughs) nothing that you'd really want to be in um and basically i remember seeing the casting breakdown and it was just such a drastic change from what i'm used to usually doing it was vietnamese it was set in 1975 uh camp peddleton california and my dad never really talked about the war he never mentioned anything about it because it wasn't exactly a pleasant time for him but i did know that he was in camp peddleton in 1975 california in April when he immigrated from uh, Saigon, Vietnam. And so knowing that I was going to step in my dad's shoes was a crazy idea um, especially like as his son and also playing like a fully realized Vietnamese American character on stage who could express the sexuality who could say the f-word and who wasn't basically like an extra in Apocalypse Now. It was super sick Um, Basically, I like went through this really crazy process of about 12 weeks of preparing for the role in which I had to relearn Southern Vietnamese dialect and for this I actually had to interview my dad and ask him about like the dialects that he experienced as a kid So I could pick it up myself Um, Now it all paid off opening night for me really because I remember stepping on stage Actually, I rolled on stage on a motorcycle because I was a badass military Saigonese soldier And I looked in the audience and my dad had came and surprised me. And um, I just remember like seeing his face while he like looked at his kid playing him basically in this really pivotal time in his life, which is like 1975 in Camp Peddleton. And just sort of seeing in his eyes how important that was to see his story on stage and to see his narrative played out, let alone by his own son in America 40 years later. Um, And it just filled me with a lot of pride. I came out and I saw my dad and he was like, totally like uh, just just in tears and he gave me a big hug. Um, And I think everyone was very touched and moved uh, in the cast to sort of see that moment of recognition that he had. Um, So as a theater maker, that experience is extremely impactful to the way I create art now and the way I see representation in the theater.
1: Winston, oh my gosh, is your dad watching now? Or your mom?
16: He is actually watching from Saigon, Vietnam. It is 8.44 in the morning. He's a trooper. He turned in, tuned in at 6 a.m. And uh, yeah, 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 he's watching. That's oh, amazing. Hey,
6: Dad. Hey, Dad. <laughs> hey, Dad.
1: <laughs> so, Quinn, we really uh, liked your piece, I think, especially because you started off with not actually connecting to the Vietnamese side of you at all until this experience. Um, and I'm also interested in just kind of hearing as an Asian American actor, how do you think the, um, the theater and the movie in Hollywood has evolved for Asian Americans and specifically for Vietnamese Americans?
16: Sure, definitely. I think um, <clears throat> growing up, I had no Vietnamese American or even Asian American role models besides Bruce Lee and my dad. <laughs> Um, it was uh, especially difficult because I grew up primarily with my mom, who is German-American. Um, you know, of course, my knee-jerk reaction to seeing Vietnamese Americans on screen in, in fringe shows, such as Kim's Convenience or Fresh Off the Boat, and even in popular theater scripts such as Cuy Gwen's Viet Gone*, and, I mean, I guess Cuy Gwen's Viet Gan, <laughs> is uh, to be overly optimistic about how we are represented in um, mainstream media. But in that statement, I'd like to highlight the word fringe when referring to the media that Vietnamese Americans are featured in. Of course, there are barriers to entry, like the fact that immigrated and diasporic people such as Vietnamese Americans will not be encouraged, as I luckily have been to pursue a career in the arts. But then you have the double barrier of entry, which is that even if they do enter the field, there seldom are roles for them to land. I mean, think off the top of your head, uh, one Vietnamese American role that you've seen. And no, um, I mean, Apocalypse Now, Miss Saigon, The King and I does not count. Um, It's that right there, I think is full of of lack of encouragement that sort of perpetuates lack of demand for Vietnamese Americans on stage and screen.
1: Yeah, you froze, you cut out on us a a little bit, but- Oh. (laughs) That's okay, but I think we do have one last question for you. I'm also curious to uh, know whether being half American uh, or in Vietnamese, like being of mixed race, do you think it has helped you or hurt you when it comes to your profession?
16: Um, <laughs> it's, it's helped a little bit. Primarily most of the roles that I did play growing up uh, were white, actually all of them uh, have been thus far, except for uh, obviously the lovely people at Company One gifted me with the role of uh, Quang Nguyen in Viet Gan. I think it's, 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 it's helped a lot. I've met with a lot of agents and and managers um, since I've been in college that have really like perpetuated the notion that like, like, oh, Southeast Asian is in right now, or that's, or your look is in right now because it's ambiguous. Um, And while that might service level feel like it's helping me or, or at least my career, I think uh, internally it's a bit of a stressor as well.
1: To view this entire event on video and watch all the stories featured, visit our website at vietnameseboatpeople.org forward slash or visit our Instagram or Facebook page and look for details under episode number 20. I'd like to thank our supporters, WHRO Public Media, Asian Women Giving Circle, and Asian Nation of Live Nation for making this event possible. Also, to our Vietnamese Boat People team for all the behind-the-scenes hard work, and a special shout-out to Richard Lung, Megan Doe, Trisha Vung, and Nancy Rogan for the event production, and Jackie Reed and Matt Young for editing support on this episode. I'm Tracing Nguyen-Meng, and thank you for listening and helping us preserve history. Please remember to subscribe to the show and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at Vietnameseboatpeople.org.